you would open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5, please. Galatians chapter 5. If you would follow along with me in verse 13, verses 13 through 18, for these are the very words of God. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Well, my wife and I love watching movies. We are big, what I don't know if you call it, cinephile, movie buffs, whatever you call it. Uh, we just love watching movies. Uh, and one of the best things about my wife is she has forced me to do something that I should have done a long time ago, which is to actually start watching some of the classic movies. I liked modern movies. I like contemporary movies. And uh, she has forced me to watch some of the old movies that aren't as high quality in terms of the HD cameras. And maybe I find some of the orchestra music cheesy. Uh, but she's shown me they're classics for good reasons. They're actually very good. One of those movies that um, I watched not long ago is a movie that many consider to be one of the greatest movies of all time, and it's a movie called Shawshank Redemption. Now, this movie is graphic and vulgar, so I'm not recommending it to you. I'm not telling the church to go watch it. But it still had enough elements of greatness in it that I see why this movie is considered one of the greatest movies ever made. But there's an interesting scene in the movie, and, and obviously if, if we were doing some kind of movie worldview class, we could really dive in and break this down further about the penal system and um, all that nature. But there's an interesting scene, this is a bit of a spoiler, uh, but there is a man who basically spends his entire adult life in prison. He committed a horrible crime when he was very young, went to prison, and at the very end of his life, he finally gets out. They finally let him go. And so he's free now. He, he has a freedom that he hasn't experienced since he was a kid. And what's interesting is he doesn't know what to do with it. He gets a job and he hates it. He doesn't know the rules. He doesn't know social customs. And he has this great line where he talks about, you know, I spent so long behind bars and behind those cement walls with a very daily routine, a very strict routine. And those walls and that routine became very comfortable and familiar to me that now that I'm out of that, I don't know how to live. I don't know what to do with all this freedom. We fight for freedom, we fight for liberty, but sometimes we don't know what to do with it once we have it. What do we do with all this freedom? Well, spiritually, Paul is sort of answering that question. If you look at verse 13, he reminds us of something he has told us over and over again, that you were called to freedom, brothers. He began this theme of freedom as we saw as we've been walking through this book in Galatians chapter 4 by reminding us of his, uh, analog his analogous reading of the Old Testament with Hagar being the slave woman and, and, and Sarah, the woman of the free. And then he says in Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ has set us free, stand firm then. 
So he's continuing this, this spiritual theme of freedom that by faith in Christ, because our sins have been forgiven, the law is no longer over us. It cannot condemn us. We cannot be judged by the law. So the law, which was once our shackles and our chains and our prison, has been opened and we have come out from under the law and we have stepped into this great land of freedom. Freedom from the law, freedom from condemnation of sin. We have been called to freedom. But as you can imagine, these Jewish people, these Jewish believers, although there's many Gentile believers listening in, but Paul says that their Gentile faith was just as much a spiritual prison as the law was. So to some degree, everyone has that experience, but especially these Jews, they have been living their entire lives in a system of slavery and Christ has come and freed them. And I think what the Judaizers have found is sometimes we prefer the slavery. It's comfortable. So we have been called to freedom, brothers and sisters. But the question is, what do we do with all this freedom? How should the fact that I am no longer judged according to the law, how should that change my life? What do I do now? What do we do? Where do we go from here? Well, Paul is going to be very helpful in this regard. He's going to do three things for us today. He's going to tell us what to do with our freedom. And then he's going to tell us why we should do it. And then he's going to close with the most helpful thing of all is how we can do it. He's going to tell us what to do, why to do it, and then he's going to remind us of the only way we can accomplish these things. So what do we do with all this freedom? Well, the answer for Paul is simple. Serve one another with love. We walk in good works. We serve people. We serve the Christian church. We obey God, which is kind of an ironic twist of events. But look at what he says. Verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brothers. And then he answers what we do with this freedom in two parts, in the negative and the positive. So first he tells us what not to do with all this freedom that you've been given in Christ. Here's what you should not do with this freedom. And what you should not do, he says, verse 13, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So what he's essentially telling us is that the fact that you have been released from the condemnation of the law, the fact that your obedience to the law can no longer judge you, the law can no longer be your judge, that does not mean you get to go and break the law as often as your flesh desires. That does not mean we get to just live however we want, sin whenever we want, and fall back upon, well, I'm saved by grace, not by works. So I can do whatever I want. That's an abuse of freedom. That's like getting out of prison and then someone saying, okay, so now you can break as many laws as you want. No, I, I don't want to do the very thing that put me in prison in the first place, which was law breaking. So even though the law is not our judge, and even though we are now under grace and not under the law, that is not an excuse to disobey God and follow every sinful passion we might have. And this is vitally important because any time you discuss this great gospel of faith alone with any person who did not grow up in that system, 
Any person who grew up in a religious system that says your faith is not enough, you will be judged according to how well you obey the law. When you tell them for the first time, no, I have been freed from the law, I am under grace, the law cannot judge me, I am saved by faith. When you tell them that, this is almost always their first response. Oh, so you think we can just do whatever we want then? You Christians, you can just sin all day and you can do whatever you want because you're not judged by the law. But that's not Paul's line of reasoning. Paul says that's, that's an abuse of this freedom. Do not use your freedom that way. As a matter of fact, um, keep your marker here and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 6. And you can keep your, once we go back to Galatians, you can keep your marker in Romans because we're going to flip to Romans uh, more than once today. Paul says it even more explicitly in Romans 6, this very concept that he just said in Galatians 5. Let's look at his more explicit teaching in Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 15. From Romans chapter 3 all the way through Romans 6, he has been expounding upon this great gospel of being saved by faith apart from works. And so he anticipates, because he's a good teacher, he knows when I tell everybody you're not judged according to your obedience to the law, I know what they're going to question me with. So he anticipates that in verse 15, and look at what he says. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. It amazes me how often I hear people say, so you think you can do whatever you want since you're saved by grace and not by works. And I just say, do you read your Bible? Paul addressed this very explicitly. Paul's gone there. 2,000 years ago, we settled this controversy. We are not saved by our works. You, when you die, if you're in Christ, you will not be held accountable to the law. But in Paul's mind, does that mean so you go and sin and you do whatever you want? No, he says in the Greek emphatically, by no means. So as we turn back to Galatians chapter 5, he says this in the negative. We do not use our freedom as an excuse to sin. Romans chapter 2 says, do you not know that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance or do you presume upon his grace? God's gracious saving of you apart from works is supposed to lead you into more works, not into lawlessness. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And that's an important term, by the way, this term, the flesh. Paul uses that very often throughout his epistles. And it's important for us to know that it's, a me it's metaphoric language. Paul is not condemning having a body. Right? Paul is not saying, which ended up becoming what we, we know today as the Gnostic heresy. These were one of the original heretics that attacked the Christian church from the very beginning of the, the, the birth of the Christian church. Which is this idea that flesh equals bad, spirit equals good. And the Gnostics were trying whatever they could to escape the material realm, to escape the material world, and exist in a spiritual world. Paul is not giving credence to that idea. You can read all throughout Paul. Paul knows that what God created, he deemed it good. 
Paul knows that Jesus himself had a physical human body just like us, yet was without sin. So this term flesh is not synonymous with physical matter. Therefore, if you have a body, you must be sinful. No, Christ had a body. He was not sinful. We will live forever in the resurrection with bodies, but we will not be sinful. Matter, bodies, these things are good. What the flesh is a reference to is the old man. It's a reference to our natural, fallen, sinful tendencies that we inherited from our father Adam. It's a reference to our sin nature, if you will. It's a reference to who we were before the Spirit regenerated us and made us new in Christ. It's essentially a synonym for our natural desire to sin. And so what's important for that is that we need to understand then that being saved, coming to faith in Christ, does not automatically obliterate every tendency to sin you might have. Paul is under the impression that these people are saved by Christ, they're in freedom, but it's still possible to give way to the flesh. So being saved by Christ does not entirely remove all of your sinful proclivities. So it's a reminder that yes, even though we are free in Christ, even though we have been saved by faith in Christ, and even though we are regenerated and we have the Holy Spirit within us, we still also, this side of eternity, have a tendency and a proclivity to sin, and we must wage war with that. Paul does not say, oh, good news, you have the Spirit, so therefore you won't even desire sin anymore. No, he says you're still going to have the tendency to give into the flesh and do not use your freedom to do that. Being saved does not instantaneously turn you into a perfect human being. That day is coming, but we are in a process of sanctification. But more on that later. Uh, I want us to read something, however, on this point um, from the great John Owen. I'm going to be reading from John Owen both in this sermon and next week as well. He has a book called The Mortification of Sin. And this book is very popular in the Reformed world and for good reason. Um, this is an extremely powerful book for all Christians. But if you, especially if you find yourself today in a place where you are struggling with maybe it's a particular sin in your life that you are failing to obey God and you are giving in to constant disobedience, this is a book that can be very helpful to you to put to death those sins. But here's one of the things he says about us still having the desire to sin even after Christ. He says, even while we claim the meritorious mortification of our sin through the work of the cross of Christ, and though the implantation of our new life in Christ is in opposition to the destructive of the expression of sin, sin remains, acts, and works even in the best of believers while we are yet in this world. Therefore, it must be our constant daily duty to kill our sin. We still have fleshly tendencies, and Paul says our freedom is not an excuse to indulge in those. But he then puts it in the positive, right? So that's what we do in the negative. What do I do with all this freedom? Well, here's what you don't do. But that's only half the equation. What do I do? What do I do with all this freedom? Well, look at what he says in verse, at the end of verse 13. But through love serve one another. So what should you do once Christ saves you? What should you do once the Spirit of God regenerates you and indwells upon you? What do you do? 
You serve your church with love. You serve one another. Which, by the way, let me take a very important rabbit trail for a minute. Notice how Paul's primary response to how we are supposed to live now that we've been set free from the law and set free from sin. He gives us a commandment which can only be fulfilled in community. You cannot obey Paul here in isolation. How do you serve one another if there is no one another? Do you see the importance for Paul in being part of a local expression of the body of Christ? Do you see the importance of Paul of being in church? Of spending time with your church family? Because that is how we live the New Testament life. We serve one another. It's a community command. It's a commandment to love not only people, but specifically in this context, the church, the people in your church. We have been called to community holiness, to a corporate holiness, to treat one another with service, and that service is guided and dictated by love. We love one another, and therefore we serve one another out of that love. And that also kind of, doesn't that address, well, again, this question of, well, you've been freed from the law, so why not do whatever you want? What does that ignore? Well, because of the Spirit, I have new desires now. I love these people, and I want to help them. I want to serve them. I want to be with them. So in a certain sense, I am doing exactly what I want. But it's because I have a newfound love, not only for God, but for the people of God, that we are called to act on that love and to serve and help one another. We have been called to serve one another. And then he elaborates on this in verse 14, and this is really profound. As a matter of fact, we are not going to plumb the entire depths of verse 14. Uh, There's a lot of discussion over the concepts I'm about to bring up today, but this will still be a sufficient understanding, I believe. He says this in verse 14, clarifying this point. He says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. Now, your translation might say one sentence or one command. Uh, The term word was a common Jewish expression for an entire sentence or a single command. So, as a matter of fact, if you were to read rabbinical writings, you would hear them not referring to the Ten Commandments, but to the Ten Words. But obviously, there's more words than ten. So, don't let that trip you up. In other words, what he's saying is that the entire law can be fulfilled. You can obey the entire law by obeying this one single commandment. And what is it? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law can be summarized by just applying this broad principle. Treat others the way you would want to be treated. Sound familiar? That's Jesus. That's the golden rule. And this was a commandment of the law, by the way. And so here's what's so fascinating. Notice how during this entire discussion that we've had throughout the book of Galatians about how we're set free from the law, we're not under the law, uh, you can't impose those aspects of the law into the Galatians, you could walk away without, if you, if you didn't truly dive deep into Galatians, you could walk away from where we've been so far and think that Paul has a really low view of the law. Like he, he's against the law or he's mad at the law. But no, what does Paul do now that we're in Christ and we're set free from the law? Where does he turn us back to? The law. (laughs) He turns us right back to, what is it that you want to do as a Christian? Fulfill the law. 
Well, how do I do that? Well, good news. You can do that essentially with this broad principle. You just love people. Just love your church. Serve them. And you'll find that if you can just serve people out of your love for them, very rarely will you ever disobey one of God's commandments. He turns us back to the law. So again, being set free from the condemnation of the law, being set free from certain aspects of the law which have been fulfilled, is not in Paul's way of thinking, meaning that the law serves no purpose. As a matter of fact, what we're going to get to later on is he's going to talk about walking by the Spirit. And it's important for us to keep in mind here that what that doesn't mean is that the Christian life is one where we have no written standards at all. Right? We don't care about the letter of the law. Get rid of the law. How do I know it's right? Well, the Spirit tells me that. Right? It's like this idea that I can just sort of hmm and meditate and the Spirit will tell me what to do. I'm led by the Spirit. I don't need the law. No, that, that's not Paul's understanding. We just got done with the pastoral epistles not long ago. And remember that great verse on sola scriptura? It is the scriptures that equip the man of God to teach and rebuke his church. So the man of God, the pastor, is not telling people, well, just what does your gut tell you? That's what's right. The, the Holy Spirit is testifying. Well, just, just follow the Spirit. You don't, you don't need the Bible. You've got the Spirit. No, that's not Paul's understanding. Paul's understanding is the pastor needs to open up the Word and say, here's where you're wrong. So Paul's understanding of freedom does not mean we jettison the law of God. It does not mean that we take the Scriptures and say, we don't need you, we have the Spirit. No, he turns us back to the, the scriptures. This is, in other words, what I'm saying is that this idea that we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves, this is not a new commandment. Paul's not saying, okay, away with all of the old commandments, I've got a new one for you. He quotes from the law. He, you don't have to turn there, but he says this exact same thing in Romans 13. He says this, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are all summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. For love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So what do we do with all of our freedom from the law? We obey the law. That's what we do. But we do it out of love. We do it out of love for God and love for neighbor, not out of a system of earning our salvation, which is what the Jews were doing, which is why Romans says they failed to grasp and reach Christ because they were pursuing the law for justification. But I also think Paul is doing something additionally here because when he brings us back to the law, we know he's not bringing us back to the law exactly as it is. Because remember, what has the whole book of Galatians been about so far? You don't have to be circumcised. But that's part of the law. Uh, here's what I think Paul is getting at. Keep your markers here. Turn to Matthew chapter 23. Turn to Matthew chapter 23. I'm sure that when we read this, it will sound familiar to you. Matthew chapter 23 and look at verse 23. Jesus, Matthew 23 is this famous passage where Jesus just rebukes the scribes and the Pharisees. And it's scathing. He holds no punches. And as we saw last week, Paul takes up that mentality when he deals with the Judaizers. 
But I digress. Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, Jesus says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So here's what we know about the Old Testament law as it stood in the Old Testament. Jesus had no problem saying all of it is obligatory, but there, there is an aspect to this law which has more weight than the others. There's an aspect of this law which is heavier and more valuable than the others. And the reason the scribes and the Pharisees were hypocrites is because they were willing to make such a big deal over the lighter ceremonial aspects of the law that those became so important that they neglected what Jesus called the weighty part of the law. Well, in other words, what we see from the Pharisees is, I think, exactly what we see in the Judaizers in the book of Galatians. And this is what Paul's trying to get at. And it's this. It's an important principle for us today as Christians. It's very easy to hide behind ceremony. It's very easy to hide behind ceremony. What were the Pharisees doing? The Pharisees were considered the most righteous people in all the land. They were supposed to be the cream of the crop the holy of all the people. And how did they go about proving that and flaunting that? Well, because they would hold to these external ceremonies. Oh, really? You guys think you're holy, say the Pharisees? Do you keep Sabbath as well as I do? Do you tithe as much as I do? Are you circumcised? Were you circumcised on the eighth day? Where's your family lineage? Are you from the tribe of Benjamin, like I am? They love to hide behind these ceremonies, these religious rites. But what Jesus is saying is, yeah, those things are important. And you should, right? He doesn't say not to fulfill those. He says you should have kept all. Those things are important. They're according to the law. Good. Good for you. But Jesus says, but at the end of the day, I don't care so much about how much dill you tithed. How do you treat people? Because you're over here bragging about how you fast more than anybody else. You're over here bragging about your fasts and you're bragging about your tithes. But Jesus says, I know you. You don't treat people well. You've neglected the weighty matters of the law. And this is exactly what the Judaizers have done. They have come into the Galatian churches bragging about their Jewish ancestry, bragging about their circumcision, telling everyone you need to be circumcised, you need these rites. And Paul says, stop for a minute. Do you even love these people? Do you even care about them? What is it that God wants from you? Does he want you to go to church? Of course. Of course he does. Does he want you to partake in communion? Yes. Does he want you to get baptized? Of course he does. When we do our confessions, our, our, our public readings, does he want you to participate? Absolutely. Those things are good. Keep doing those things. But that is ultimately not enough to call yourself a genuine Christian. Oh, I'm a Christian. Prove it. Well, I was baptized. I didn't ask you that. Lots of people have been baptized. What's important to Paul? Do you serve one another in love? It's not that baptism isn't important, but that, that's not enough. That's just a ceremonial rite. Anyone can do that. 
And so, to sum this up, what Paul is saying in verse 14 is that there are aspects of the Old Testament law which are gone. He's not saying we need to be circumcised. He's not saying we need to stop trimming our beards and stop eating pork. And, and he's not saying that there's no aspect of the law that is fulfilled and gone in Christ. But what he is saying is that there is a weight, a moral heavy weight to the law that does exist in the New Testament life today. And Paul says, that's what you do with your freedom. Yes, you should get baptized. You should do all the ceremonies. But on the day-to-day basis, what do you do now that you have been set free in Christ? The weighty moral aspects of the law, which can be summed up in this. Treat others as you would treat yourself. Love your church and serve them well. Paul points us back to the weighty matters of the law. He reminds us that not being under the law, it means two things. It means, yes, the law has changed in form. The book of Hebrews tells us that. So there are aspects of the law that are gone. It means that the law cannot condemn us. So the law is not our judge. We will not be judged according to our works. But it does mean, though, that we are still law-bound people. We still have a divine law to follow. And we follow that divine moral law by serving one another in love. We serve one another in love. So why should we do it? Well, there's a lot of answers to that. We've, we've actually sort of covered that already in many ways. But Paul gives a very pragmatic answer as to why we should serve one another in love. Look at what Paul says. If you will read along with me in verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So why should we serve one another in love? Well, I've answered it this way. Church unity. If we neglect the weighty matters of the law, if we neglect to treat each other well, if we just follow all of our fleshly instincts, we will end up turning on each other, biting and devouring one another, fighting with one another, and what will that ultimately lead to? We will consume one another. We will be cannibalistic heathens that destroy the church, eat each other from the inside out. The law of God, serving one another love, protects the unity of our body. I think most likely what was happening was when the Judaizers came into the Galatian churches with this false gospel, they caused so much confusion and they caused so much controversy that that made tensions rise. And now people were so focused on the law of Moses and circumcision and the feast days and the new moons and trying to look as Jewish as we possibly can that they neglected these weighty matters of the law and they were so focused on circumcision that they weren't actually taking care of one another. And Paul is essentially holding up the fruit of this gospel and saying, is this what you want? You want to believe in a gospel where great, everyone's circumcised, fantastic, but you hate each other. You can't get along. Is that really what Christ came to do? To create a bunch of circumcised, pious people who can't stand one another? Who bite and devour one another? Is that gospel freedom? No. But when we serve one another in love, it keeps us from biting and devouring one another. It keeps our unity. It keeps us in love. It reminds us that the person sitting next to me, sometimes they're more important than me. And it's amazing how many conflicts go away when you can just convince yourself of that. Yeah, this person's rubbing me the wrong way. This person's saying things I don't like. But you know what? Sometimes they matter just as much as I do. Sometimes their feelings matter more. I'm going to serve them. I'm going to love them. It's amazing how much that will make conflict just go away. 
It is for the sake of the unity of the church that we do not neglect to love one another. We must love one another to not cause division, but to avoid division. So what do we do? We serve one another in love. Why do we do it? To preserve the unity of the church. But lastly, how do we do it? You can ask my wife. It's not always easy to serve the Christians in your life. It's not always easy to love the people in your life. And Jesus' command, as we know, to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, does go beyond the walls of the church. Because Jesus was asked, who is my neighbor? And what did he essentially tell them? Everyone. Whether we like it or not, loving and serving our neighbor is not easy. How can we possibly do this? Well, how does he answer that? Look at verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If we want to love one another and serve one another and obey God, we have to have something that is invaluable. And that is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. If you do not have the Holy Spirit, you can kiss all this goodbye. You have no strength in you. You have no power in you. You have no hope in and of yourself of ever loving people rightly without an external, godly, divine empowerment. We cannot do this without the work of the Spirit. To, to, to prove this point more explicitly, turn back again to the book of Romans chapter 8. Look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, and this is key, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Without the Spirit, obeying God is not unlikely, it's impossible. You do not have a natural capacity to truly love God. You can do outward things that look like obedience to the law. You can donate to charity and you can help someone when they get a flat tire. But God knows the heart and God knows the intentions are ultimately not in line with what he says your intentions need to be. So those things are still not pleasing. They're still not in submission to God. Without the spirit, the text doesn't just say you probably won't. The text doesn't say you occasionally won't. You cannot. We cannot underestimate how important it is that the Holy Spirit of God regenerate us and make us new. As Jesus says in John 3, make us born again. You are not able to love one another. You can't do it. But what's the good news? Verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. 
Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Without the Spirit, our efforts to obey the law and serve one another are in vain. As John Owen so poetically put it, he says it this way, this is the saddest warfare that any poor creature can be engaged in. A soul under the power of conviction from the law is pressed to fight against sin, but he has no strength for the battle. He must fight, but he can never conquer. He is like a man who thrusts himself on the sword of the enemy on purpose to be slain. The law drives him on and then sin beats him back. Sometimes he thinks he has foiled sin, but he has only raised a dust so that he cannot see the sin. He stirs up his natural affections of fear, sorrow, and anguish, and this makes him believe that sin is conquered when it is not even touched. He soon must be at the battle again, and the lust which he thought to be slain is seen to have not even been wounded." Without the Holy Spirit, we have no power to win the fight. But thanks be to God, we who are in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit, and that entirely changes the ballgame for us. As Owen goes on to say, we have seen that the Spirit alone can truly mortify sin. He has promised to do it, and all other means without Him are empty and vain. How shall we mortify sin if we do not even have the Holy Spirit? How do we receive the Holy Spirit? Paul said that if we do not have the Spirit of Christ, we do not belong to Him. If we are Christ's, if we have interest in Christ, we indeed have the Spirit and then have the power for mortification. Which is his way of saying to kill, to slay sin. So as Paul says, how do we obey God? How do we kill, mortify the desires of the flesh? Well, we need the power of the Spirit. As we turn back to Galatians, we need the Spirit to fight these battles. But what does that look like? Well, notice what he says in verse 17 back in Galatians 5. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So he reminds us of this spiritual warfare that we have raging on in us between what is good and what is right, the power of the Spirit, the leading of the Spirit, and our remaining sinful passions. And remember, he tells us to walk in the Spirit. He says in verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit. So those are action words that he is calling us to. So relying on the power of the Spirit, in other words, doesn't look like this. We don't just sit there and say, okay, fine. If, uh, if God doesn't want me to sin, the Spirit will, will force me not to. I'm going to do whatever I want. And if I go to try to sin, the Spirit better stop me. Because that's what Paul said, right? It's the Spirit who ultimately mortifies my sin, not me. No, that's not what Paul says. Paul says, you still do the walking. You must walk with Him. We have to come together with the Spirit and we have to make that choice. And we're able to now that the Spirit has made us new creatures. We are able to obey. We are able to love. We are able to follow. And so it is our job to follow the guidance and the lead of the Holy Spirit to know what is right and to kill what is sinful. But we must remember that this is impossible without the Holy Spirit. 
It is He who enables us and empowers us to do good. So what do we do with our freedom? Serve one another in love. And why should we do it? Well, one reason is to maintain the unity of the church. And how do we do this? Only by the gracious and merciful working of the Holy Spirit of God within us. If you wanted a thesis statement, one thing to summarize this text, I would say it's this way. If, if, if someone were to ask you, what did you learn in church today? What was the sermon about today? You could say something like this. Now that we've been saved, we must be sanctified by the Spirit. In other words, we answered this question, okay, Jesus saved you. You've come to faith in Christ. You've been saved. Great. So now what do you do? Sanctification by relying on the power of the Spirit. We are made holy. We are made more into the image of Christ. And this happens because the Spirit has indwelled us. And Paul already told us that that happened by faith. And that's why he concludes in verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Remember, the Spirit, the indwelling of the Spirit, is our sign, it is our seal, that we have been set free from the condemnation of the law. We have not been set free from all moral obligations to God. But the law is not our judge, and the law cannot condemn us, and the Holy Spirit of God within you is the proof of that reality.